1: Tonight on The Readout.
2: I didn't do it. I wasn't involved in it. Um, but I think, um, I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into, into doing things later, later in life.
1: Really? Uh, okay. Uh, Ron DeSantis is not backing down from his support for teaching children that slavery was not only not so bad... It was an awesome job skills program. You're welcome, Black people. As the right finds a target even bigger than Hunter Biden, her name is Barbie. Also tonight, judging by Donald Trump's social media, he certainly believes another indictment is imminent new information tonight on when that indictment might be handed down. Plus, Greg Abbott's border cruelty, allegations of pushing migrants into the water, in defiance of a Justice Department order to remove dangerous barriers in the Rio Grande. But we begin tonight with conservatives clutching their little pearls over the world's most iconic doll. That is, of course, Barbie, whose movie smashed a glass ceiling when Greta Gerwig made history by earning the biggest domestic opening by a woman director ever. Fans also flocked to see Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, a biopic about the creator of the atomic bomb. And so you had two movies coined Barbenheimer, representing the fourth highest selling box office opening in history. And when you throw in how well the Mermaid movie did and Into the Spider-Verse this summer... For the first time since COVID, it is safe to say movies are back. And yet, conservatives are not enjoying the boom for the economy. Instead, they are big mad about Barbie, which is why we have conservative commentator and grown man Ben Shapiro taking himself to the movies to hate watch it. And because Ben was so mad, and so manly, he released a 42-minute video screed that included setting fire to Barbie dolls in protest over the film's perceived anti-man wokeness. Are you okay, Ben? Rhetorical question, as he is clearly not okay. And never mind, he went to hate-watch Barbie dressed in the same outfit as Ken, which is super weird. Meanwhile, on Friday, country singer Jason Aldean doubled down on his MAGA-friendly single Try That in a Small Town. The song's music video features Aldean performing outside a Tennessee courthouse where, nearly a century ago, an 18-year-old black man was attacked by a mob and lynched. Lots of folks on the socials have pointed out the many ways in which the video seems to promote racism and gun violence. At a concert on Friday, Aldean bargled about cancel culture and said, quote, what I am is a proud American. I'm proud to be from here. I love our country. I want to see it restored to what it once was before all this BS started happening to us. I wonder what he means by this BS happening to us. Could it mean demographic change that reflects more women and brown people in America? A young generation of voters who are tired of mass shootings in their schools and who want LGBTQ people to live fully and freely? And by the way, who does Aldean mean by us? All this rage just confirms the right's deepest fears about a more diverse America. And the only tactic they seem to have left, other than voter suppression and gerrymandering, is to ramp up the culture war, because they are clearly out of ideas. It is a war that is doomed to fail. So here comes their latest tactic, using the law to enforce historical amnesia, which brings us to Florida where the latest DeSantis shenanigans involve the state's new Black History curriculum, which will teach students about how enslaved Black people benefited from slavery by getting cool new job skills. This weekend, DeSantis, with a completely straight face, defended the revisionist history, saying enslaved people parlayed all that forced labor, torture, and rape into, you know, being a blacksmith and stuff. Slavery is a transferable job skill, yay. A spokesman for the Florida Department of Education provided a response to NBC News through a statement from members of the DeSantis-appointed African-American History Standards Workgroup. They defended the new curriculum, citing examples of blacksmiths, shoemakers, and fishing and shipping and industry workers who allegedly acquired their highly specialized skills as slaves. But the work group apparently aren't the greatest experts in, you know, history, because their examples are not even accurate. For example... In the statement, Ned Cobb is listed as a blacksmith who somehow benefited from slavery. But he was actually a tenant farmer, born 20 years after emancipation. Lewis Latimer, also listed as a blacksmith, was born a free man in Massachusetts. And he wasn't even a blacksmith. He was an inventor. While Betty Washington Lewis, listed as a shoemaker, wasn't even black. She was the free white sister of President George Washington. Oh, and a slaveholder. Joining me now is former Florida State Senator Dwight Bullard, senior political advisor to Florida Rising and a former high school social studies teacher and political strategist Stuart Stevens, friend of the show, is also here with us. So thank you both for being here. Um, let's go to you first, Dwight Bullard. You were actually at the meeting wherein they took on these brilliant new standards for teaching history. Can you describe how that meeting went?
3: Um, I don't know what was first, the dog or the pony. But it was definitely a dog and pony show. Um, There were a number of uh, folks who spoke out against uh, the standards, simply asking the board to table them until they could be revisited. And then with unanimous consent, the all-white State Board of Education decided to adopt these new African-American history standards.
1: So it was an all-white group. Okay, so one of the things that I, I went through and I actually read the standards because I didn't want to criticize something I hadn't read. So I went through them and I saw the sort of, you know, the lines that have gotten the most ink, the stuff about people got transferable skills. And I noted just three of the ones they got wrong. There were 15 examples cited, none of which were accurate. None of the ones that were cited by the Florida Department of Education were even correct. The people they said were blacksmiths weren't. The people who they said got skills through enslavement were either born free Or acquire their skills after obtaining freedom. So there was literally not one accurate one of the 15 they cited. So that was weird. But here's one of the things that was included, which they spelled wrong the Okosi Massacre, which happened in Florida. They spelled it wrong, but it's actually spelled O C O C E E, the Okosi Massacre. Here's what happened in that day it was on uh, November, on, on Election Day in 1920. A black labor broker named Moses Norman showed up to vote. Election officials told Norman that he hadn't paid his poll tax. He said he had, but he was turned away. Norman sought help from a white judge who advised him to try again. Again, he was turned away. By the evening, a white mob had arrived from Orlando. A rumor spread that Norman was hiding out in the home of Julie Perry, of July Perry, a black landowner and community leader in his early 50s who had been involved in the voter registration drive. His house was surrounded by the mob. Then it went up in flames. So did a nearby AME church and at least two dozen other homes. It may never be known exactly how many residents were killed that night, that's the Ocoee massacre. Under Florida's guidelines, um, uh, Mr. Bullard, Dwight Bullard, the 1920 Ocoee massacre is to be depicted as an act of violence perpetrated against and by African Americans. So they want to teach, they want to both see that, and says that the victims of the massacre also perpetrated violence. As a black man from Florida, what do you make of that?
3: Well, I mean, if the act of violence was voting, uh, then that's the violence that they're talking about. So. That shows you the absurdity of the change in those standards. The Koei Massacre were Black men choosing to exercise their right to vote. And because of their choosing to uh, exercise their right to vote, uh, violence was committed against them by uh, an all-white mob. And so it's embarrassing that in the state of Florida, we can't tell the truth even about our own history and what I— My remarks at the actual state board meeting were that the reason that we even have African-American history standards was because the state actively chose to cover up the Rosewood massacre uh, of the early 1920s as well. So it wasn't until African-American legislators in 1994, after the research was done around Rosewood, finally moved to adopt African-American history standards, keeping them broad primarily because of the uncovered history of Black people in the state of Florida. The state of Florida was the most violent state in the South, the state where you could most likely be lynched of all the states. That's above Alabama, above Mississippi, above Tennessee. Per capita, more lynchings happened in the state of Florida than happened anywhere else. And so when we think about that history of Black violence— It's something that needs to be told, but has been actively covered up. Um, And the state's trying to do the same with these changes.
1: Uh, Stuart Stevens, you know, back in the day when you were working on Republican campaigns, I I mean, I am old enough to remember Republicans saying we need to find a way to attract more African-Americans to vote for us. Um, But it seems like that day is done. Um, It does seem now that the party's purpose is to stuff black history into a, uh, a tin can and send it to the bottom of the sea. What do you think yeah, is the motive you know, for that? Is that just to get more white voters, Stuart? What What do you think is the motive for doing that?
4: I think it's fear. Um, you know, the country is headed to become a minority-majority country. And all the Stephen Millers in the world isn't going to stop that. And the Republicans' party had sort of two choices here. One, to change and do what was necessary to attract more non-white votes. Or go down this path of trying to maximize white votes with this racism and xenophobia and fear, while making it more difficult for those who are non-white, particularly at the lower economic uh, end, to vote. And that's the tragic way that it went. I mean, in 1964, uh, Goldwater got 7% of the vote. uh, African-American vote. Trump got 8%. So you do 1% every 56 years. Um, You know, it doesn't look very good. But it's just this conservatism has become a fearful ideology it's a fear of the future um fear of you know this this idea that the country is becoming more urban um and it's it's a great tragedy
1: but I mean, Stuart, it's a future that's already here, right? I mean, 15 year, if you're 15 years old right now, today, your mm-hmm. generation all the way down to uh, newborns are already majority non-white. America is already majority minority at 15 years age and older, so younger. So what they're doing, Stuart, is they're saying to black and brown and multiracial kids, you can't learn your history. And I'm just looking at the electorate here. The Republican Party is still 90 percent white. The Democratic Party relies for its votes on a multiracial coalition. Um, You can't win elections long term this way, Stuart, unless you literally do apartheid and make it impossible for people of color to vote because they're only shrinking among people of color.
4: Well, I think that's why you have these efforts across the country to change the voting system. you know, I don't think that this appeals to a lot of suburban voters, a lot of white voters, a lot of modern, uh, moderate white voters. I mean, if you think about it, what is the driving force behind so many families that we know to get their kids a better education? And what Florida is doing is just bad education. And if you continue to do this, you're going to test worse and in, in, in sc- your whole school system is going to go down. <laughs> Students are going to test worse. It's going to make it more difficult to get into good colleges. That's and correct. who's going to want to move a a company there where your kids are going to go to a second rate uh, school system. So it's completely self-defeating.
1: And you're seeing um, Dwight Bullard. Uh, let me just actually play for you. I, I want to play for you. The, this is her name. Is state, her name is Kim Daniels. She's a state. Rep, she was a former state representative. Um, this is what she said back in 2018. She is now a member of this Florida African-American history curriculum workforce that put together this curriculum. Here she is, Dr. Kim or Representative Kim Daniels.
3: I thank God for slavery. Mm, I thank God for the crack house. If it wasn't for the crack house, come on, somebody, God wouldn't have never been able to use me how he can use me now. And if it wasn't for slavery, I might be somewhere in Africa worshiping a tree.
1: Dwight Bullard, this is the member, a member of the task force that put this together. So there are black folk in Florida who are participating in this. What do you make of that? Yeah,
3: it's unfortunate that uh, not all skin folk are kin folk, and people tend to be complicit Um, in their own oppression, unfortunately, Representative Kim Daniels is currently a representative in the state of Florida, currently on this task force, and currently out of touch with uh, uh, where African-American history is, has been, and is moving. Um, You know, in the light of the Du Bois's of the world and the Carter G. Woodson's have put so much time, the John Hope Franklins and so many others, that have put time in their real academic research into making African-American studies uh, a core component of of the history curriculum. It's folks like this with no background in education, no background uh, as a historical reference point, as a historian, as an academician, even as a researcher that are being placed on a task force to reinforce uh, junk history. Um, yeah. The sad part is you're pulling that clip. She actually said that in a committee meeting.
1: <laughs> um, the last word to you on this, Stuart. I mean, you have the president of the United States, the current president um uh Joe Biden. Uh, putting forth a national monument, consecrating a national monument to Emmett Till um, in your home state uh, of Mississippi. But we we can't even get the Oppenheimer history right. This is a country that did not only a movie, but also a documentary. And they they left out the fact that there were people in Los Alamos, Hispanos, yeah. they were called, Hispanic people who were moved off their land, forced off their land, um, and then t- hired to work in the Los, An- Los Alamos facility without the proper PPE and died as a result result of poisoning from the nuclear material. So we didn't even get that right. Okay, that history is also bear. This is a country that is ahistoric in the way it operates in the world. I wonder for you as somebody who comes from a state where that Emmett Till, um, you know, and it'll probably get shot at like the current one is, you know, as you and I both know, people shoot at the Emmett Till Memorial that's there now in Mississippi. Now there's going to be a national one. What do we do as a country if we are determined to forget our past?
4: Look, I think it's the story of America, um, that there's a, a push and pull between the positive and the negative. Um, I, look, I, I'm an optimist on this. I think that Mississippi has tried to do um, look at its past. I think that's the direction the country's going in. I think that this is um, an attempt to recreate some past that never really existed. And I think it's going to be defeated. It's just not where America uh, wants to go for the majority.
1: I agree with you. And I will note that I looked at some polling over the weekend. Uh, Ron DeSantis, the reason he's sliding in the polls, he's losing college educated white Republicans yeah. because even they're like, you know what? That's too much. We don't want it. Uh, former Florida State Senator Dwight Bullard. Thank you very much. Stuart Stevens, our friend of the show. Thank you. As always, up next on The Readout, Trump's increasingly frenzied, freaky-outy, rage-filled posts suggest he may just be days away from potential indictment. We will bring you the latest, the very latest, when The Readout continues. Caesar's Sportsbook is
0: the only sportsbook app with Caesar's rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.
5: Hey friends, are you struggling to attract and retain top talent?
1: It's getting hotter here in the nation's capital, and no, I am not talking about the extreme heat wave affecting millions of people across this country. I'm talking about the heat affecting one person in particular, the twice impeached, twice indicted former president. That is because at any moment, Special Counsel Jack Smith could hand Donald Trump his third indictment, this time over his efforts to try to overturn his 2020 election loss. And just as a reminder, Donald, you did lose. And it appears like the heat is getting to Trump as he spent the weekend more focused on rage posting on his Twitter, or should I say, X knockoff platform, continuing his attacks on the special counsel, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and the entire DOJ, hurling insults and whining about non existent election interference. And join me now, Harry Littman, former U.S. attorney and former deputy assistant attorney general, and Miles Taylor, former chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration. His new podcast is called The Whistleblowers Inside the Trump Administration. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Harry, I want to start with you. What should we be looking for as signals to whether, if, if we assume an indictment is coming, whether it's imminent?
6: Uh, It's a great question. I think really there's one main signal, and that is everything they're talking about in terms of witnesses they have to interview, they don't need the grand jury for. But it is customary. And in this case, it will happen that Trump's lawyers will be afforded a Final chance to come in and uh, make a last minute plea, uh, which will not succeed, but but they have the opportunity. I'm not. I don't see why they wouldn't take it. And it's interesting, uh, as you've just noted, that the sort of hysteria levels from Trump are hitting the stratosphere because this is one thing he would know about. Are we going in? Uh, Are we? uh, How is this going to work? What is the timing? So to me, the table is set. Smith is ready to go. And that's what the target letter means. Save only you guys coming in or not. And by the way, you can't take two weeks, you you know, come come in, have the pitch after that. Here's the indictment.
1: How often does this pitch ever, you know, result in a non indictment when you come in for that last meeting? How likely is that?
6: Well, you know, I was U.S. attorney and had those. Occasionally it would change the charges, perhaps. Not here, only because it's been so carefully thought through. There's a draft indictment that you can be sure has gone up to the front office. So it's not as if DOJ always turns a deaf ear to these things. There, it might be useful. Here, I think we can be certain that no changes will occur as a result of the meeting, though.
1: Uh, Miles, there is a certain level of hysteria going on um, uh, amongst Donald Trump's uh, Twitter fingers or whatever he calls his platform, Truth Social. Um, You know the guy. I don't know him. Uh, How afraid do you think he is?
7: I think he's terrified. I mean, I, I think that Donald Trump is not worried about this affecting, you know, in general, uh, his overall standing with the MAGA movement, I think what he's worried about, and even jail time, I think really what he's worried about is this is going to give even more ammunition to even more of his political rivals in the primary process. We've already seen Chris Christie and Will Hurd and Asa Hutchinson, you know, seize on his indictments to say, look, the guy may not even be able to, To take office as president of the United States, he's worried that this is going to make it even more difficult for him. But bigger picture, the concern that I have right now, Joy, though, is as much as Donald Trump is sweating it, and I like to watch him sweating it on TV, (laughs) we also know what this man does when he gets pushed into a corner, uh, and that is he incites violence. The man has a history of violence. And remember, you know, in the lead up to January 6th, many months before the year before, he started to talk about coups being afoot and a civil war was in the offing. And we're seeing these menacing videos. And trust me, it's not by accident. Donald Trump's trying to assess if he does have supporters out there willing to commit acts of violence on his behalf. And that's what worries me every time one of these things happens is that we might see it. Now, I don't think with an indictment you're going to see him exhort people to violence because Donald. Trump will always hope in the end he can be the winner and not the loser. But there's a lot of opportunities in the next year for Donald Trump to become a loser in courts and at the polls and in the court of public opinion. And that moment in yeah. which he's decisively declared a loser is the moment we've got to worry about the potential for public safety concerns.
1: You know, it's, it's a really good point that Miles brings up, Harry, because, you know, Donald Trump has gotten away with saying a lot of threatening things about the prosecutors. And I'm wondering at what point do they say? Say you know what, you can't do that anymore? At what point do they actually shut him down? Because, you know, being threatening and sort of talking like a mob boss about Jack Smith at all, that's part of his campaign. At some point, do you think that they say enough?
6: it's the court that says that. So the court, once he is right now there's you know the Jack Smith will not issue a proclamation enough and it is really interesting it's a perfect juxtaposition because his campaign platform seems to be that that Smith is deranged and to and to be going at this. But once a court has jurisdiction and especially a court in DC that is used to this, they can say look Run your campaign, but do not pollute the jury pool. Run your campaign, but do not endanger the officers of the court to include Jack Smith. And if you do, I have means to really muzzle you that eventually, you know, there's got to be many warnings before you do this to a former president, but eventually means you are going in jail until you stop. So there's a series of things that a judge can do and will do to protect the the sanctity of a trial or a judicial process
1: once it is engaged. And, Miles, I mean, you know, you, you talked about sort of the threat in general, and I think that's very true. But do you think, how, how do you think the Homeland Security Department is thinking about this? Because, you know, you obviously don't have Secret Service for everybody. Jack Smith doesn't have Secret Service. You've got officers of the court involved here. You've got a potential judge involved here. Donald Trump has gone after Jack Smith's wife. You know, how, how much can the federal government protect these folks? Because then you just broaden it out. Fonnie Willis is out here. You've got the prosecutor, the DA in Manhattan. There are a lot of more moving pieces here, Donald Trump is threatening all of them.
7: Well, I've actually very recently had conversations with a number of people in, in top law enforcement positions in the administration about how, in general, going into 2024 with all of the cacophony, all of the charges against Trump, the political volatility, they're they're scrambling to keep up and to plan for how to address these very unexpected scenarios. But the problem is, it's the lone wolf you worry about the most and the one that you don't see coming. I mean, just think about when Donald Trump started objecting to the search in Mar-a-Lago and he started blasting. The FBI as the fascist bureau of investigation. It's no coincidence that within days a guy shows up at the field office in Ohio with an AR-15 and a nail gun. And we're lucky that people besides the perpetrator didn't die. Uh, It's those exhortations to violence from him and his movement that we've got to be concerned about. But I think that we're going to see more and more of that as it becomes clearer that Jack Smith has damning evidence we don't know about against Donald Trump. We just saw reporting today about how they're actually looking into my former department and how DHS briefed Donald Trump on election security, and he was aware. I was actually there for some of those briefings. Now, to be clear, I haven't spoken to the special counsel, but I was there in briefings for Donald Trump years before the election, where we briefed him on how secure the 2020 election would be and all the efforts we were undertaking. So Trump was aware it would be a secure election and then somehow conveniently forgot that his administration had helped secure the elections nationwide. It sounds like something the special counsel's going to bring up to talk about his mindset.
1: Uh, very interesting. OK, we're going to have you gentlemen back to talk about this as this goes forward, because it looks like it's, it might be happening. Harry Lippman, Miles Taylor. Thank you both very much. Uh, before we go to a break, just a, a very quick correction. In the last block I mistakenly referred to an infamous Florida race massacre by the wrong name. I called the town Okosi. In fact, the name of the town is Okoe. So all the Florida people don't holler at me on social media. It's Okoe. It is still a town near Orlando in Florida. Still ahead. Texas Governor Greg Abbott defies a Justice Department deadline to remove a floating barrier across the Rio Grande. It is just the latest example of the governor's cruelty toward migrants. We'll be right back.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.
1: The Justice Department is suing Texas and Governor Greg Abbott over a 1,000-foot floating barrier and an additional razor wire barrier that the state deployed across part of the Rio Grande, a river stretching between Texas and Mexico this month. The DOJ had warned Abbott that his moves violated federal law, raised humanitarian concerns, and presented serious risks to public safety and to the environment. Last week, the Houston Chronicle got access to an email from a Texas Department of Public Safety trooper who laid out deeply disturbing allegations. In the email, the officer who worked for Greg Abbott's Border Security Initiative claimed that they were ordered to push small children and nursing babies back into the Rio Grande. They had also been told not to provide water in record-shattering heat to asylum seekers. The razor wire deployed by troopers has injured people, including a woman who had a miscarriage while entangled in the wire. So much for pro-life Texas. The trooper also suggested that Texas has set traps of razor wire wrapped barrels in parts of the river with high water and low visibility, which has increased the threat of drowning because it has forced migrants into deeper stretches of the river. The trooper noted that the razor wire traps are so deadly that they discovered a young mother and her two children had been submerged in the river. The mother and one of her children were declared dead at the hospital. The second child was never found. Governor Abbott seems quite indifferent to these horrors. Earlier today, he tweeted, quote, we will continue to deploy every strategy to protect Texans and Americans and the migrants risking their lives, unquote. It's a little odd. the governor claims that he's protecting migrants by endangering their lives, given that the Chronicle also reported that federal Border Patrol officials issued internal warnings that the razor wire was dangerous and was inhibiting border agents from helping people in distress, a warning that Abbott clearly ignored and continues to ignore. Join me now is Julian Castro, former HUD secretary in the Obama administration and MSNBC political analyst. Now, Julian, it's always good to see you. I know that it is your brother, Joaquin Castro, Congressman Castro, who actually asked for this lawsuit. Um, let's talk about what's happening here. This appears to be an attempt to cause death to migrants, including women and children. Is that the way you see it?
8: Uh, yes, it is, Joy. I mean, this is sick stuff. This goes beyond just passively trying to keep people out. As you described, this is actively trying to harm people. And as the Houston Chronicle article made very clear, it is harming people uh, in, in terrible ways. And now people are getting to see the pictures. They're getting to hear the stories of folks who have been maimed, uh, of people who have been put into danger, including children. So this is sick. It's performative cruelty by Governor Abbott. How do we know that? Well, we know that because the number of border crossings in Texas has actually plunged since May when Title 42 was lifted. So um, what we've seen over the last several months is that those crossings have gone down and the federal approach has been working to reduce those crossings. And instead of recognizing that and trying to work with the federal government to make sure that things continue to go in the right direction uh, and also perhaps do something about Comprehensive immigration reform, Governor Abbott engages in another level of cruelty to appeal to his right wing base. That's all it is. It's not about solving the problem. It's about hurting people to please his right wing base.
1: You know, it is that bears out because you're right. The the number, you know, of border crossing has fallen below 100,000. That's the first time since 2021. So it's 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 going, as you said, in a in a direction down. But all you're hearing is more tragedy. There's another young uh, another story. An independent auditor found an eight year old girl uh, from Panama was um, who died despite clearly preventable illness um, because. People refuse to treat her um, at the border. What you're, it does seem, because between this, what Abbott is doing, what DeSantis is doing, snatching people out of Texas and throwing them on planes everywhere, they're sort of using these migrants at this point as theater, um, and in some cases as gory, sort of snuff film-type theater. Do, do you believe that Governor Abbott—is this the goal? Does he want to see more deaths? Does he, does he think that's going to deter people if just more people die?
8: Well, I think he thinks this is going to get him um, you know, more support in a Republican Party that has been taken over by extremists who absolutely get their jollies from seeing uh, migrants hurt, maimed, punished. In their eyes. And so he thinks he's going to get ahead politically. And this is a guy that, as I've said on your show many times, has bigger political ambitions. I think he sees himself one day, although I don't I doubt it's ever going to happen, but he sees himself at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And he thinks that one of the ways you get hmm. there is to be this extreme on immigration and to hurt people. It's not only an indictment of him, uh, it's also an indictment of the entire GOP. And that's why Uh, You know, I'm glad that the Justice Department is filing this lawsuit. I hope that President Biden, who has the moral high ground here, will say something as well, because if you don't, you really allow them to keep playing these cruel games and go further and further. You can't just file the lawsuits. You also have to use that moral high ground, say something about it and help stop it.
1: You know, it's funny. I it's funny. People, some people still call them the GOP, as you did. That used to stand for Grand Old Party. There's nothing grand about this party at the moment, and I'm not sure there's nothing old about it because they don't resemble the original Republican Party at all. Um, uh, last question: Do you think that there should be prosecutions around this because this does seem to be homicide?
8: Yes, I do, and it's very telling that the reason we know all of this is not some activist somewhere, some lawyer somewhere for a migrant. It's Greg Abbott's own personnel that are telling on him. This was a whistleblower. And so I I am hopeful that the investigation that the federal government does is going to turn up evidence that can hold people accountable for this.
1: Yeah. Uh, Julian Castro, thank you, as always. Really appreciate you being here. And coming up, weeks of massive protests and heated debates in Parliament over proposed judiciary changes are really sending Israel uh, into conflagration and we will talk about that because it begs the question whether this country will even that country will even continue to be a democracy we'll talk about it after the break. Unrest is growing in Israel after the Israeli parliament passed a key part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to overhaul the country's judicial system. After it passed, opposition lawmakers shouted shame and government of destruction while storming out of the legislative chamber. The bill takes away the power of the Supreme Court to declare government decisions unreasonable. It's essentially a power grab for Netanyahu and his far-right allies. Yesterday, President Biden warned Netanyahu against taking this undemocratic course. And in a statement today, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, quote, as a lifelong friend of Israel, President Biden has publicly and privately expressed his views that major changes in a democracy to be enduring must have as a broad, have, have, have as broad a consensus as possible. It is unfortunate that the vote today took place with the slimmest possible majority, unquote. Joining me now is David Rothkopf, columnist for The Daily Beast and USA Today and host, of the Deep State Radio podcast. Uh, David Rothkopf, thank you for being here. Uh, I read your column today in the Daily Beast, and it was fiery. Um, uh, This is just a piece of it. You wrote, for years, Israel made the case that it was America's essential ally in the Middle East because it was the only state in the region that was a democracy, not a theocracy, or an autocracy like its neighbors. That is no longer the case. Please explain.
2: Well, Netanyahu for years has been cutting away uh, at the fundamental rights of the Palestinians who live within territory controlled by Israel. Now he is cutting away at the fundamental rights of Jewish people who live within Israel. I'm sorry it's taken that to awaken us to the decline of democracy in this country, but it has begun to awaken us. We do recognize that Netanyahu no longer... Uh, has shared values with the United States. And those shared values have been the basis of our special relationship. And until those shared values can be reestablished, I think we have to use every tool available in our diplomatic arsenal to fight on behalf of the Israeli people, all of the Israeli people, for their fundamental rights and to preserve democracy.
1: And, you know, you wrote that, you know, as recently as a week ago, only nine people really had the courage to say that inside of the United States Congress. There has been sort of a a prohibition in many ways of criticizing the Israeli government because the Israeli government is treated as a stand-in for Jewish people around the world, which it is not. There are lots of of Jewish people in the United States who oppose the Israeli government, too. Why do you suppose it's been so difficult um, for American politicians, Democrats and Republicans, to stand up to this. Because you're right. I mean, since I was in high school, I've been watching Benjamin Netanyahu talk about how how much territory they were going to take. He's never shown much respect for Palestinian humanity. And now he is, under his government, gobbling up the territory that's supposed to be Palestine. Very few politicians ever say anything in the United States.
2: Yeah, that's right. Now, some of the reasons for that have been you know, understandable reasons. Israel was a key ally in the Middle East, particularly during the Cold War. Um, Israel was more democratic than its neighbors. Some of them were political reasons, uh, and some of them were because people were afraid. They were afraid that if they criticized the Netanyahu government, that Netanyahu, the people around him, their supporters in the U.S., would then say, well, you are being anti-Semitic. Uh, and that, of course, is not true. If you care about the future of the Israeli people, um, uh, all of them, then you need to be critical. We need to be a good friend of Israel, uh, which means standing up when they're on the verge of making a mistake, taking a wrong turn or acting in a way that's not consistent with our national interests. And we need to say no. And if that means withholding aid, if that means Uh, withholding interactions between our governments. We have to do that. We have to use all the tools and we have to stop cowering to uh, the people who are going to, you know, barrage any critic with criticism.
1: I mean, they, the evangelical Christian right in this country has been a big driver of support uh, toward Israel. There are some of the beliefs that they have at what happens in the end times are actually not good for Israeli people and Jewish people, but that is their belief system. Um, Nicholas Kristof wrote a piece uh, over the weekend that said in the New York Times that, you know, there might be, it might be time to reconsider the $3 billion a year in aid. This is a rich country. They've got nukes. Uh, they don't need our help uh, in terms of their military. It's the strongest military in the region. Do you think that's the lever? If, in fact, they are becoming a theocracy and an autocracy. And let's just face it, Benjamin Netanyahu is doing some of this to stay out of prison, much like, I don't know, Donald Trump would probably do if he got elected again.
2: I think it's a lever we have to consider. For a long time, I think uh, they have been given a blank check. Netanyahu has been cut a lot of slack. Uh, that's got to end. And what we've got to say is we'll use all the tools available to us, including withholding aid. And by the way, it wasn't just Nick Kristof who said it. Two former U.S. ambassadors to Israel who have long been supporters of Israel have also said it. I see a change in the American uh, political uh, leadership that's starting to say, well, this isn't your grandfather's Israel, your father's Israel. This direction Netanyahu is taking people is very, very dangerous, and we've got to do the right thing, stand up now, and and maybe at the same time make up for decades of not doing the right thing where it comes to the rights of the Palestinians that live within the borders controlled by Israel.
1: Uh, David Rothkopf, thank you very much. I hope everyone will read your piece in the Daily Beast. Uh, It was well-written and, like I said, very fiery. Thank you very much, sir. Much appreciated. Coming up, still ahead, uh, a cautionary tale on the potential dangers of AI from a very personal perspective. You do not want to miss this. Stay right there. Over the past year, the boom in AI technology has made it much harder to tell if what we're seeing online is real or fake. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, there's no way I'd ever fall for it. Well, here's a cautionary tale. This weekend, a cousin of mine texted me asking if I could hook her up with some weight loss gummies. And when I asked what she was talking about, she told me she saw this interview of me being interviewed by CNN's Anderson Cooper.
0: We decided to ask Joy herself, And this is what she told us.
1: Hi, Anderson. I'm happy to have this opportunity to tell you my story. Two months ago, I saw an advertisement for NTX Keto Gummies. The website claimed that with the help of this product, you can lose weight by 25 pounds in four weeks. I decided to order three bottles. In the first few days, nothing changed. I was skeptical about this venture, but what was my surprise when my weight just started to evaporate? Okay, except that the thing is, I have never been interviewed by Anderson. I've never even met him. (laughs) Nor have I ever endorsed some weight loss gummies. This whole thing was a deep fake scam. Just ask my trainer, Coach Jazz. But this kind of voice cloning and video manipulation has become more and more common, including in the world of politics. Not too long ago, a video circulated of an AI-generated interview showing Hillary Clinton On MSNBC, endorsing Ron DeSantis for president, which never happened. Another deep, deep fake shows President Biden insulting transgender women. Again, not real. And last week, the super PAC Never Back Down, which is supporting Ron DeSantis, aired an ad in Iowa using an AI-generated version of Donald Trump's voice. And it's not just politicians and people who are on TV that are being affected. It's also happening to everyday people. One Arizona mother is sounding the alarm after she received a scam call where she heard her teenage daughter screaming and crying for help as a man demanded a ransom. But it wasn't actually her daughter. These scammers were able to use AI to reproduce this 15 year old's voice just by using her social media posts. So moral of the story, in a world where it is not only easier for bad actors to use this technology, but also easier to spread misinformation with no consequences. Beware of what you see and hear online. Stay woke out there. That is tonight's readout.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.